We're going to keep going today in our study of the book of Matthew. We've been in Matthew since September, and it's been good for us, I think, as a church to see the start of the era, the time when Jesus comes to the earth and is preaching the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins and what we would call the gospel. And so it's been good for us to be together there. We're going to keep moving this morning in Matthew by looking at Matthew 5, verses 4 and 5. So in a broader sense, we are in the section called the Sermon on the Mount. And in a more narrow sense, we are within that in the section known as the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is blessed are, blessed are. That's this section that we're in right now called the Beatitudes. Now, when we started chapter 5, just before Christmas, I think it was that we started chapter 5, uh, I mentioned that some people refer to the Sermon on the Mount as the upside-down kingdom. And the reason that some people call it this is because oftentimes the, the ethics the way of living, what Jesus is commanding his people to do, how he's commending them to live, seem very much upside down from what is common around us. And we're going to see that today in our text very clearly. We saw that earlier in verse 3. And it just oftentimes seems that the more we press in to know the word of God, the more we understand how he wants us to live when we hold that up to what's going on around us, by and large, it will seem backwards. It will seem upside down from what most of us are told, what most of us see. And so today, we're going to look at two of these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. So before we even define those words or see how they're used in our context, the words mourning or meekness... We already know those are not common words in our vocabulary, right? It's, it's not really something that we're pushed to understand as we look at the world around us. You're not going to go to a leadership summit at your employment and the boss gathers everybody together and says, okay, if we want to take this market, we all have to be meek. That's, that's backwards. That's opposite, right? You're not going to turn on the television and see people encouraging you to be sober, introspective, to think seriously about your life. Rather, what oftentimes we see is a kind of shallow, surface-level happiness, kind of a slapstick kind of a thing that's just forget your trouble, don't think about it. We don't have to focus on that. That's, that's depressing. That's, we don't want to talk about that. Just be happy. Just, just act like everything's fine. That is the message that we get almost everywhere. In the famous words of Bobby McFerrin, because when you worry, your face will frown, and that'll bring everybody down. So don't worry, be happy. What a sad existence to just kind of consider our life as some kind of surface level, skate through it, just grin and bear it, paint a happy face. The Bible gives us a much different way of living. That's what we're going to see here today in our text. In contrast to this kind of happy-go-lucky existence, that is being promoted all around us, the Bible offers us a different approach. One that takes a hard look at our life, our motives, our actions, the things that drive us, and this different approach is found in the Beatitudes. And what we're going to see today, I think, is indeed opposite of what we are told most commonly. So if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read the first five verses together. 
And as we stack the verses on in this section of Matthew, I'm just going to keep reading from verse 1 every week. So we did 1 to 3 last time. We're going to do 1 to 5 this time. Next week it'll be 1 to 7 or however far we get. And I'm hoping that if we do this enough, maybe some of you and me could memorize this short section. Be a blessing to kind of stock this in your mind and have constant reminders of what God has called us to as his people. So even though we're only going to look at verses 4 and 5 today, we'll read all the way from the beginning. So if you'd follow along in your Bibles, we'll read this together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Father, as we do every time we gather together, we come to you now with a great need. And that need is that you would come by the power of your spirit and do what you have promised to do in opening our eyes, in softening our hearts, that we would not hear this instruction simply as, you know, words on a page, things that we might consider at some point in our life, but that you would give us a sense of urgency here, that this is how you want us to live now. This is not something to put off until later. This is serious. This is life and death. This is eternity before us. And so, God, we want to come to your word this morning with a kind of appropriate seriousness, a sobriety. Help us to reject the things around us that would draw us away from you or focus our attention on things that are contrary to your word. Help us to put those things away. And for this brief time that we have together now, would we focus on the truth of your word? Would you give us help by your spirit to not only know these things, but to live this way? Let us not just be hearers of the word only, but doers in the strength that you give to us. So Father, we ask this as a big request, but you have no limit to what you can do. So we pray that you would come. And do this work in our hearts. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I've pointed out uh, in these past months how much Matthew is relying on the Old Testament as he writes. And Jesus is relying on the Old Testament as he preaches and speaks and presents the gospel. And I bring this up because today, and especially in our section of the Beatitudes, we're going to see some really, really strong connection to the book of Isaiah. And so I'm going to read from Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and then I'm going to point out some similarities and I'll explain why I am reading this in just a moment. So Isaiah 61, of course, is a prophecy about the coming Messiah and what he is going to do when he comes. And so let's listen with those ears. This is the Messiah, as it were, speaking in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So can you hear some of the similarities between Isaiah 61 and Matthew 5, 1 to 5? Right? What does it say that the Messiah will do? Bring good news to the poor. We could say, well, Jesus is doing that, the poor in spirit, those who empty themselves and allow the Spirit of God to operate in their life. Not only that, but the Messiah is going to bring comfort to those who mourn, and that's exactly what we're going to see here in our text this morning. So there's really strong connections. Okay? There's obvious influence from the Old Testament to what Jesus is saying and the way that Matthew records it. Now, here's why I bring that up. Two reasons. First, Jesus identifies himself as the subject of Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue, he opens the scrolls, he reads that text that we just read, he closes the scroll and he says, truly I say to you, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Mic drop, right? He just, boom, he just he says, this is me. I'm the one who's doing this. So now, if we look back at Isaiah 61, we see that the work that the Messiah is going to do is primarily spiritual work. And this is getting at our definition of what it means to mourn. This will all tie in, I promise. So he's going to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, comfort to those who mourn. This is not a Messiah who's coming to establish some kind of governmental kingdom on earth. We talked about this last Sunday. Rather, this is a Messiah who will come to deal with the sins of his people, to comfort those who mourn, to say there is liberty for those who are bound in sin. And so... Because we see that the Messiah's work is primarily spiritual, I think we need to identify and define our words in the same way. Sometimes when we hear the word mourning, we automatically, in our context, associate that with some sort of loss, some kind of hardship, and that's true, right? That, that is a correct way to think about the word. But here, I think Jesus is giving it a different meaning, or we could say an expanded meaning, because it certainly means that. It's not just feeling bad because of our circumstances. R.T. France is one of the commentators that I've enjoyed from Matthew. And he says that the mourning pictured here in Matthew 5.4 is not primarily, as our modern usage might suggest it, a personal sense of bereavement or loss, but rather this mourning indicates those whose situation is wretched because of sin. Don't you love the word wretched? We don't use that enough but it is saying those whose situation is ruined because of sin. That is who the audience here is. And I think that's the right way to think about it. Let me explain this just a little bit further. And to help explain how I think Jesus is using the word, we're going to go back to the Psalms. So Jesus does this, Matthew does this, all of the New Testament writers do this. We don't just want to know like what a word definition is. We have dictionaries, right? If we wanted to just know, well, what does the word mourning mean? We could open a dictionary and get a pretty bland surface level definition. But we want to know, how does the Bible use this word? How is Jesus using this word? So we want to get more than just a definition. We want to know how the word is used. So given what we've seen here, and we know to be true of the scriptures... What kind of mourning could be considered? What, what is the situation in which appropriate mourning produces the blessing of God? Well, I think David helps us out. 
in Psalm 32. You can go there or you can just listen to what he says. So this is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what is the blessing there that David is talking about? It's the forgiveness of sin. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and we ask, mourn over what? Is it just that sad people are going to be blessed? No, no. there's a much more expansive definition here. We should be able to make the connection and say this. So follow me on this little path. If blessing comes through the confession of sins and repentance, okay, that's what Psalm 32 just told us, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions have been wiped away. So if blessing comes through confession of sin and repentance, and godly sorrow is what leads us to repentance, can you fill in the rest of this? You know where I'm going here? then we can rightly say that the ones who mourn over their sin are blessed. And not just blessed because they stay in a kind of perpetual, never-ending state of sadness and mourning, but they are blessed because the mourning over sin leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness, which leads to blessing and comfort and joy. Are you tracking with me so far as we go through this? Let me make it a little bit more explicit. The reason that Jesus can say that those who mourn are blessed is because of the sorrow that leads to repentance. So that when a sinner repents of their sin, receives forgiveness, according to Psalm 32, they are blessed. They're at peace. All of the ways that we defined that word in the last couple of weeks. And I would suggest that there are a couple of different ways that we have godly sorrow over sin. We have sorrow over the sin in our own heart, and we have sorrow over the sin or the effect of sin in others. These are two really clear examples from the scriptures. If we look at Psalm 32, we can see very clearly the sort of individual effect, the sorrow over our own sin. So we all, the Bible affirms, have broken God's law. We have not lived up to his standard. We have transgressed, we have trespassed, that is, gone beyond the border that God has set up. And in doing that, Romans 3 says, we all have sinned. No exceptions. Every one of us has experienced that. And in that brokenness and sin, we find ourselves often, at least as believers, in sorrow. But there's also a sense, I think, that is right and appropriate to mourn the sin in others. Or maybe a better way to say it would be that we mourn the effect of sin, both in our heart and in the world around us and in people around us. Jesus demonstrated this. See, Jesus didn't have sin, right? He came as the perfect son of God, free of sin. He never sinned. That's why he is our perfect sacrifice. And yet we see him mourning, Martin Lloyd-Jones made a super interesting comment, just an aside comment, as I was reading this week. He said, nowhere in the Bible is it recorded that Jesus laughed. Isn't that interesting? No, I, I don't think Jesus was 
you know, had a lemon in his mouth all the time, was just angry and sour and bitter. But he had a seriousness about him. He knew what it was to mourn the sins of others. Let me give you just a couple examples. In, in Matthew 23, he's coming into Jerusalem and he laments the fact that Jerusalem has not, the Jewish people have not repented and turn from their sins and recognize him as a Messiah. And he says, would that you had come under my wings as a, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you won't. He laments this. He mourns this. Or what about Lazarus? Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, his close friend who has just died. And he weeps there. Why? Because he didn't know he was going to raise him from the dead? Or because he was unsure of how this is all going to play out? No. Jesus is weeping over the effect of sin in the world. Paul makes it really clear. Romans 5. That sin entered the world and death came into the world through sin. Meaning, had there been no sin, there would be no death. So when Christians mourn, our church has done this this week, yes? We are mourning the effect of sin in the world. Jesus does this. We do this. This is what it means to mourn in the context. So in our day, just as Jesus did, he looked around, he saw the effect of sin. I think it's right for us to do the same thing. There is so much in the world that is just contrary to what the Bible teaches us. This past year, we celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's a wonderful victory for life. And yet we mourn the killing of tens of millions of children by the wicked actions of men and women. In the church, we celebrate engagements, weddings, the birth of new children. And yet we mourn over the sin that has caused Gender ideologies that are wicked and same-sex marriage and things that are trying to erode what God has established for his people. So it's always this kind of balance between rejoicing and sorrow in the Christian life. And Jesus is saying, those who recognize with the state of the world and mourn over that will be comforted. So we can't forget the second half of Matthew 5, 4, Right? So mourning, lament, yes, for our own sin, for the sin in the world around us, but Jesus promises comfort to those who mourn. But how does that work? Why is that a true thing to say, that those who mourn over their sin will be comforted? I want to give you the definition that Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about, and keep in mind here that we have identified the mourning primarily as mourning over sin. So he takes the personal aspect, but we can apply this to the sin of those in the world around us as well. So here's what he says. The Christian finds himself guilty of sin. We've all been there, right? And at first, it casts him down and makes him mourn. But that mourning, in turn, drives him back to Christ. And the moment he goes back to Christ, his peace and happiness return and he is comforted. Do you see how this all works? How this fits together? 
that there is a kind of godly sorrow over our sin that pushes us back in repentance and faith to Christ who has promised to forgive us our sins. Therefore, the one who mourns will be comforted in the sense that Christ paid for that sin. And when we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive those sins. And we are then comforted. So in that sense, I think we need to understand that repentance and faith are not just things that bring comfort initially upon conversion. We talk about repentance often when we talk about people coming into the kingdom of God. But these two things should be ongoing characteristics in the life of the Christian. You do not just repent once because we don't sin just once. Repentance sorrow over sin, bringing it to Christ, and being freed from that are ongoing experiences in the life of the Christian. David in Psalm 32, so we read the first two verses about the blessing of those who are forgiven of their sin. He continues on and says exactly what I think Jesus is saying. Let me read this for you. Psalm 32, starting in verse 3. For when I kept silent, when I did not repent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Mourning over your sin. Confession to Christ and experiencing the freedom and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus is exactly what it means to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Next, let's look at Matthew 5, 5. Read this again with me. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when we started this morning, just a few minutes ago, I said, a lot of what we're going to see here is going to seem backwards. It's going to seem upside down. And I think that that's certainly the case here in verse 5. In a very general sense, this beatitude has to do with the reversal of fortune. So those in this life who are meek, who are sometimes in the older translations, this is also said to be uh, kind of downcast, mistreated, these kinds of things, will, in the kingdom, come to possess a great inheritance. But let's get more specific, right? So we don't want to just generalize things. We want to know exactly what's going on here. So let's see what Jesus is teaching first. What does he mean when he uses the word meek? That's another one that we don't really use that often. It's not that common, and maybe you don't, haven't heard that very much before. But like we've done earlier, I want to go back and have our definition shaped by the Scripture. So I'm going to go back to the Psalms for one. We'll go to the New Testament for a couple of other ones. And we'll try to determine what Jesus means when he said, blessed are the meek. So first I'm going to go to Psalm 37. Now what's happening in Psalm 37 is that David is contrasting two different ways of living. The whole book of Psalms are kind of the righteous and the wicked, right? We've, we've talked about that before. So in Psalm 37, he almost defines what it is to be meek by telling us what they are not. So this is a definition by contrast, we might say. 
Okay? So he's going to tell us all the characteristics of the wicked, those who do not trust in the Lord, and then contrast that with what the meek do. So you can follow along in your Bible, Psalm 37, or just listen. Starting in verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So what do we see in there? What did you hear in that text? The wicked, the evildoers, the ones who are contrasted with meekness, are the ones who act in anger, wrath. They are forceful, dominant in all the wrong ways. They worry, that's what the word fret means, to worry about the future, and they take rash action to control the outcome of the future rather than being patient and waiting on the Lord. So that, that's, the, that's the one party that's being listed here. Now, in contrast to that, the meek do not have the same characteristics as the wicked. They're not aggressive, forceful, angry people, but according to the text, they wait on the Lord patiently, and as a result of that patient waiting, they enjoy the peace that comes from the Lord. And I use this text not only for that contrasting definition, but also because we see very similar language. Verse 11 in Psalm 37 says that the meek shall inherit the land. Matthew 5, 5 is telling us that the meek shall inherit the earth. Very similar statements being made here, right? And now there are, there are two different ideas when it comes to meekness. Most commonly. There's probably a whole bunch more. But I'm just going to use two by way of example. So remember, we're trying to get narrowed into a definition of what Jesus means when he uses the word meek. But there's sort of two ways that people sometimes take this. First of all, there are people that say, well, to be meek is kind of the same as being timid, shy, quiet. Don't want to ruffle any feathers. Don't want to go against the grain. Just be meek. Just let it happen. This is kind of this take it, laying down kind of a thing. That's not what biblical meekness is. When the Bible commends meekness, it is not saying, don't have an opinion, don't do anything, just take it and keep your mouth shut. That's not it. But on the other side of things, there's an attempt to define meekness as something other than it is, but it goes the other direction. So people in this camp would somewhat aggressively say, meekness is not weakness. <laughs> As if the right kind of weakness were somehow bad or wrong. Think about all the times the Bible talks about God using the weak to despise the strong and all of these kinds of things. But that's the right kind of weakness. And to people on this camp who kind of want to turn it into some kind of wide stance, kind of <clears throat> meekness like this, I would just say, consider the scriptures. Meekness does not mean a kind of take it laying down weakness, but it does mean weakness in some sense. Kind of like the poverty of spirit. Being poor in spirit meant emptying yourself, getting rid of the things that are inherent, that are sinful, the things that we want to hold on to, and getting rid of those so that the spirit of God can operate in our life. And I think meekness is very similar that we ought to be controlled by and regulated by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know how you are with this, 
but I do not need any help being aggressive, assertive, boastful, the kinds of things that my natural self wants. I don't need anybody to tell me to do that. In my sin, I want to do that. I need help being like this. I need reminders and instructions not to try to take a stance and get my way and fight for what I think. I don't need help with that. I need help saying, take it easy. Trust the Lord. You don't always have to get your way. You don't always have to be in a fight and be as aggressive. It's not what meekness is. So I want to take you to two texts in the New Testament and show you how Paul and James use the word. So, and then we'll be able to, I think, get a good handle on what Jesus is talking about. In Colossians 3, Paul has just told the church what they ought to take off, the, the kind of sinful actions they should remove from their life. And now, starting in verse 12, he says, so here's what you should be. Take that off, but here's what you should do. This is Colossians 3.12. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Do you see the list of words that Paul plunks meekness into? They are synonymous, okay? It would not make sense if we're saying, well, meekness is a kind of stand your ground, don't take flack for anything. Okay, if that's what it means, let's see how it fits in Paul's definition. Clothe yourselves then, beloved, with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Stand your ground and don't take flack. Patience, bear with one another in love. It doesn't fit. I am arguing that the meekness Jesus is talking about is the same kind of meekness he applies to himself in Matthew 11 when he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and meek, lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. James uses the word to describe how we should receive the scriptures, the word of God. This is James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive it with humility, openness. Don't fight against it, stiff arm it. Allow it to enter and do its saving work. So I want to make sure that our definition of meekness fits with what Jesus, James, and Paul all think it means. And of course, there's going to be disagreement, and that's okay. But we have to get our definition from the scriptures. So I am saying that it is somewhat synonymous with the words Paul uses, gentleness, patience, kindness, all those kinds of things. But it does not mean a lack of opinion. It doesn't mean that you just take everything lying down. It means that you give deference to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life rather than your own spirit. It's very similar to what we saw with being poor in spirit a couple of weeks ago. So what happens then when the people of God live this way? If we live out what Jesus is commending to us here in the Beatitudes, what happens? What is the future here? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. What does that mean? <laughs> I have an answer. And I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. I pointed this out when we started Matthew 5. When we started the Beatitudes. 
Verses 3 and verse 10, if you're in Matthew, you can just look at that real quick. Verses 3 and verse 10 are the only Beatitudes with the present blessing or outcome, the present tense, right? Both verse 3 and verse 10 say, blessed are those who, whatever, for theirs is the kingdom, right now. Now, all of the Beatitudes between 3 and 10 have a future orientation by using the word shall. That, that's a future tense modifier right there. The meek shall, in the future, inherit the earth. This means that the realization of this promise, what Jesus is talking about right here, the fulfillment, if you will, comes in the future for the meek. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about the what and the how. What does this mean, that the meek will inherit the earth, and how does that happen? So first, the what. What does it mean to inherit the earth? Now we said last week when we talked about the kingdom of God that it is primarily spiritual, but it has effect on every aspect, every area of our lives and will until the end of time. And that's true. And so I think for the most part, we can say that all of the things that Jesus is talking about here are primarily spiritual in nature. Meekness, purity of heart, peacemakers, those are things that we say, yes, this is part of our life in Christ. This is how he commands us to live inside his kingdom. But if we take the inheritance of the earth simply to mean that in the future we will come into possession of the world, we're just kind of repeating what Jesus said a couple verses earlier, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We, we're already there. We're already in. We're already there. So I, I think it means something else. I think what Jesus is saying is that the meek will inherit the literal, physical earth as it will be in the resurrection. He's speaking plainly, and I think we need to interpret his words plainly. Now, the more I was thinking about this, I thought of text after text after text that would reinforce this idea. And I'm only going to share one with you. If you want to know the other ones, just shoot me an email and I'll send them to you. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. So keep in mind, I am trying to convince you or to show you that the inheritance of the earth is literal and actual, not hypothetical, okay? So Hebrews chapter 2, here's what's going on. The writer of Hebrews is trying to motivate his readers to pay attention to Christ to not dilly-dally with their salvation, but to take it seriously, to hold fast, to maintain their confidence in Christ. And the way that he motivates that kind of obedience in Hebrews 2 is by holding out a stunning future reality. Let me read it. We're going to start in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Listen to what it says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, 
but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay, that's a mouthful, right? Let me, let me explain. Do you, do you see what's happening? Can you follow that logic along in your text here? God is not going to entrust the rule and the management of the new heavens and the new earth to angels, but it has been testified somewhere, what is man? Not to angels, what is man? You, you see what he's doing here? He is saying that the control, the government, the inheritance of the actual, literal, physical world to come is going to go to man. This is a quote in verses 5 to 7 from Psalm 8, which is all about mankind. Now at this point, someone will say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Hebrews is about Jesus. This whole section is about the greaterness of Jesus. So I think this is talking about Jesus is going to rule the world to come, not man. And I would say, well, yes, but that's not what this text is telling us. There is a both and kind of a thing going on here. So let me, let me explain. If someone to say, no, this is all just talking about Jesus. It's not to angels, it's to Jesus. He's the man. He is the ultimate man, the representative and we say that's true, right? There's a sense in which that's true. But I don't think that's what this is saying. There are two distinct persons here. There is man and there is Jesus. And I can prove this to you. So we're going to read verses 8 and 9 again together. And I want you to look in your Bible. Only this time, I'm going to swap the, word, the, the name Jesus for him. Okay? So if someone says the whole thing is referring to Jesus, then that's what we mean when we say him. Just follow me on this and you'll see how this is incompatible. Verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside Jesus' control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That doesn't work. There are two distinct persons in this section. Verses 5 through 8 is mankind. Verses 9 and on is referring to Jesus. It's not to angels that God gave the superintention of the world to come, but it has been testified somewhere, what is man? God has given control of the word to come to man. This is the inheritance that the writer of Hebrews is dangling out there as a carrot to say, pay attention. Pay attention. Don't mess with this salvation. Do you know what is in the future for you? Or to use Jesus' words, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now we need to close by asking how this works. Because if we just leave it at, well, well mankind's going to inherit the earth. Well, who? Everybody? Is there, is there a specific group of man, or is there like a special group maybe, or some of us, or none of us? How does this all work? And the reason that we need to close this way is because if we just leave it as, well, the meek will inherit the earth, we miss Jesus. We don't want to do that. So what I'm saying is that the how of this is through union with Christ. Massive theme in the New Testament, right? Our spring Bible conference in March, the whole theme is union with Christ. So what happens when a person is united to Christ by faith, everything that was Jesus now belongs to him. We talk about this in terms of his righteousness all the time. 
that we do not have the righteousness God requires. So we must have what is Christ's, his perfect righteousness. And we say, rightly, that when one is united to Christ, what happened to him happens to us. What belongs to him belongs to us. So Christ, being the ruler of everything, brings us into that with him. You tracking with me so far? Let me read one more text to show this and then we'll be done for the morning. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Very end of the chapter, Paul is giving one more admonition. He says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, all are yours. And then he goes on to explain how this is possible. Verse 23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So here's how this all works. God is the universal, God the Father, universal owner of everything. We've established this time and time again here in the church. He has given control, rule, authority to Jesus Christ, his Son. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So... If we track with the idea of being united to Christ, which means that when we are connected to him through faith, what is his becomes ours. Whatever is his is ours. And Paul says here, whether the world, life, death, things present, things future, all are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Do you know what you're going to do in the future? Rule. You see, the meek will inherit the earth, not because of their meekness, per se, but because meekness is an observable, visible indication that a person has been united to Christ. So this is all about Jesus. Yes, It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but it is to man. But the qualifier is only men who are united to Jesus. It is all about him. So when we come back to Matthew 5 and Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I want to do exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing and hold out before you this morning, Christian, your future. It is so much greater than you can imagine. It is so much more full than you could ever dream. All things are yours in Christ. But remember the future tense. We don't want to be the people who pursue the ownership of everything now. It has been promised in the future. And God is faithful. He will never Go back on his word. So we read in Matthew, blessed are the meek. Jesus is saying, the living according to my standard, living as we should in the kingdom of God, will produce not only present benefit and peace and joy from obedience to Christ, but it sets us on a trajectory for glory, for dominion, for the rule of the earth that God has given to us. It's not to angels. It's to men 
and women who are united to Christ by faith. That is your future. What a promise. All that from the Beatitudes. Isn't that great? What a complete picture that God gives us. I am so thankful for this. So this morning, right now, as we come to the table, I want to offer some time for us to just consider in your mind what does it mean for me to mourn over my sin? What does it mean for me to be comforted by that? And what does it mean for me to be meek, to not always demand my way, to let the Holy Spirit operate in my life? What, what does that look like for you? Let's take a couple minutes and we'll pray and then we'll come to the table. But I want you to know this is not just some throwaway phrase. This is not just some, well, yep, that's what he said and we'll move on from here. This has to do with future glory and it's ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's dangerous in a sense for us to talk this way. It sounds, well, it would sound presumptuous if you hadn't said it in your word. Who are, who are we to deserve to be given this kind of honor, this kind of position? Who are we to be entrusted with the rule of the world to come? Well, we're nothing on our own, but we have everything in Christ. Whether the world and life and death, things present, things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's. Hmm. Father, help us to understand this, that there is, there is such massive promises in your word, things that you have laid out for your people that blow our mind. And in the meantime, as we live in the kingdom, as we anticipate the fullness and the consummation of all things, would you give us strength by your spirit to mourn our sin. Oh, I pray that none of us would be comfortable with the sin in our life, that we would get rid of it, kill it. By the power of your Spirit, help us to put those things to death, to confess our sin to you, Lord, and be comforted in the fact that Jesus Christ has paid for everything. What a blessing. So God, enable us now for this. As we sing... And we prepare to come to the table. Would you help us to be able to have strength to live this way, knowing what is promised to us, knowing the blessing of living according to your will. And would you strengthen us for this? And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.